The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so welcome back again. And uh, let us continue where we left off this morning. Uh, we are looking again at the um, very beginning here. Uh, of the Buddha's career as a teacher. Yeah, he's just starting out, he's thinking about the Dhamma, trying to understand how to express these teachings in a way that people can actually understand. And we have been looking very briefly at the idea of dependent origination. And uh, this is important because it allows you to understand how suffering arises. And of course, if you understand how suffering arises, how the problems in the world come about, yeah, then of course you can also understand what to do about it. You have to understand the causes to be, to be able to understand how to overcome those causes and then overcome the result as a consequence. So this matters and this is important. And uh, it is interesting that it is not really enough to understand that the cause of suffering is craving. It is not sufficient because craving, you can only, you can temporarily remove it, but you can't remove it completely. Uh, it always tends to come back again. So you have to understand this idea that ignorance, lack of understanding is the problem. We want to see things clearly and then you can overcome ignorance and then you overcome craving through overcoming ignorance and then through overcoming craving you overcome suffering here. Yeah. So this is what this teaching is about. So it's all about the cause of the problem, uh, what we are trying to do on this Buddhist path. Uh, so uh, that is the um, arising sequence uh, of dependent origination, how suffering arises. Uh, and. Uh, now we're going to move on to the uh, what happens next. So the Buddha has uh, looked at the, uh, in the first part of the night, the arising, and now we come to the opposite, the middle part of the night. The Buddha again reflected on dependent origination in reverse order. But with a complete fading away and end of ignorance comes the end of intentional activities. With the end of intentional activities comes the end of consciousness. With the end of consciousness comes the end of name and form. With the end of name and form comes the end of the six sense spheres. With the end of the six sense sphere comes the end of contact. With the end of contact comes the end of feeling. With the end of feeling comes the end of craving. With the end of craving comes the end of grasping. With the end of grasping comes the end of existence. With the end of existence comes the end of birth. With the end of birth comes the end of old age and death, the end of sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and distress. This is how there is the end of this whole mass of suffering here. So this is the dependent origination in the cessation sequence. Yeah, so we have the uh, the origination sequence starting off with ignorance leading to suffering. Yeah. But if you remove the initial condition, which is ignorance, then the whole thing comes to an end. 
So this is what what White is called the cessation sequence: one thing leading, or leading to another, and eventually suffering itself, the whole mass of suffering coming to an end. So this is the uh, the uh, kind of the good news. Yeah, remove the cause, move move the condition, then suffering comes to an end, whole mass of suffering here. So this is the third noble truth. Yeah. This is equivalent to the third noble truth, uh, taking away that same craving uh, uh, that is talked about in the second noble truth. Uh, that is the craving for sensory, the sensory world, uh, the craving for existence and the craving for annihilation, non-existence. Uh, by removing that craving, everything comes to an end. Uh, how can you remove that craving? Again, by getting rid of ignorance. In other words, getting the opposite of ignorance is like understanding, yeah, knowledge or whatever. And this is what this whole Buddhist path really is about. So it's good news, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, we probably knew this already before we came here, but it's kind of <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? The end of suffering. Wow, is that even possible? Most people say that's impossible to come to the end of suffering. How can you come to the end of that? And now it kind of also makes sense how you come, how you find the solution to death, right? It seems it seems like such a weird thing to find the solution to death, but now you know why. The reason why is because you find the solution to rebirth. You no more rebirth, you have no re-death. Yeah, you only have one death, but no death beyond that. That is the solution to the idea of dying. You don't carry on on this samsaric journey round and round. So um, the Buddha, reflecting on these things, uh, getting clear, ready to teach others. Uh, and then he says, uh, seeing the significance of this, the Buddha exclaimed an inspired utterance. Uh, when things become clear to the en energetic Brahmin who practices absorption, uh, then all his doubts are dispelled uh, since he has understood the end of the conditions. Uh, so interesting here how he talks about himself as a Brahmin. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of one of those things. We'll see that a bit more in a second. The idea Brahmin here is like a spiritual Brahmin. In India, in the caste system of India, the Brahmins were like the religious seekers, typically the kind of the priesthood of ancient India, and they always fancied themselves as the best. Yeah, they were descended of Brahma born of Brahma's mouth, is kind of how they thought of themselves. But in Buddhism, that whole idea of the caste system was demolished. The Buddha wasn't interested in caste. In the Sangha, there was no caste. In the Sangha, everyone was on the same level. And the Buddha said, what makes you a Brahmin is not where you were born, but your conduct, the quality of your heart. Anyone can be a noble person. Nobility comes from within, not from without. That's such a beautiful thing, yeah. It doesn't matter your background and who you are. The quality of your heart, the quality of your mind, that makes you a noble individual. That's really beautiful. So the Buddha takes the word Brahmin and redefines it in this way. It's a very common thing for the Buddha to do in the suttas, using the existing vocabulary, redefining it. And then... In the last part of the night, the Buddha again reflected on dependent origination in forward and reverse order. So now both together. Ignorance is the condition for intentional activities. Intentional activities are the condition for consciousness. 
consciousness is a condition for name and form, etc., etc. This is how there is this whole origin, how there is the origin of this whole mass of suffering here. And then the reverse one, with the ending of ignorance, uh, comes the end of this whole mass of suffering here. So, um, there you are here. Whole mass of suffering here. Interesting how the Buddha thinks about life. Yeah, sometimes you ask people and you say that, you know, you, you kind of say something about the Buddhist teaching. Yeah, you know, there's suffering in life. Then, no, nah, I don't suffer here. Yeah. Don't know anything about suffering. <laughs> but then the Buddha says there's a whole mass of suffering here. Yeah? yeah, and uh, sometimes we are in denial about that reality of life. And one of the reasons that we are in denial is because we don't, first of all, we haven't experienced life fully. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, there's always experience that anyone will find suffering. If you break a leg, everyone will agree that that's suffering. Yeah. If someone who's close to you dies, it's going to be suffering for the majority of people. Um, so often we are not, haven't had enough experiences in life. We don't really know what suffering means. Uh, but uh, the problem is also one of perspective. Uh, yeah? Perspective means that sometimes you have to extract yourself uh, from the ordinary life to understand what suffering is about. Uh, Suffering is often not immediately obvious. Yeah, for example, the uh, restlessness of craving, the restlessness of desire that always drives you on. Uh, we often not experience that as suffering. Uh, but when you become really peaceful and really quiet, uh, you start to understand actually that's suffering. Uh, yeah, it's like this: you're being a slave to craving, as it says in the suttas. Uh, craving is the master; you are the slave. <laughs> is that interesting? Yeah. It's very interesting. Craving brings out the whip and says, run around and do things. And that's exactly what you do. And we all do. Yeah, because craving is in charge. And then when you calm down, you become peaceful, that's when you become free of that slavery. In the meantime, you're a slave. Hard to see this. So sometimes you need the contrast. So every, any one of you who has had a bit of peace in your meditation, who has seen an alternative to the normal way of existing, uh, you will start to understand more about dukkha, more about suffering, what it actually means. Uh, it's a very profound thing. Uh, sometimes we can't even see what's going on. Uh, this is part of the problem. People don't really have a full appreciation of life very often. Uh, of course, the other reason why this teaching of the Buddha is so hard to understand is because it has this whole idea of rebirth in it. Uh, and we are trapped in this little life, this kind of very narrow existence with birth here and death there, and we exist in between, and that's all we know. We're like that chick in the eggshell, inside the egg. We don't see reality until we break out of that eggshell. So because we have this very narrow vision of, the, of reality, we are completely deluded, we are ignorant about what actually is going on. Yeah, This is why right view is so important, because it shows you the kind of the horror show of existence. <laughs> yeah, that's it's strange, isn't it? You kind of horror show and then we laugh because, <laughs> but actually it's, we should probably cry, right? <laughs> so it is like that. So we, uh, so we, uh, 
But this is kind of this is why the, this, the problem is so profound. That's why there is this whole mass of suffering. Yeah, it is really this is problematic, and we need sometimes we need this idea of faith and confidence in these teachings. Uh, we need to act not just to accept the ordinary values of our existing society, uh, to accept the ideas that come down that we are taught at school and from our parents. The world is much more than that, uh, and then we need to. This is where faith and confidence comes in into these teachings. So, anyway, so that's what the Buddha reflects, and then he says, seeing the significance of this, the Buddha exclaimed an inspired utterance, when things become clear to the energetic Brahmin who practices absorption, he defeats the army of the Lord of Death like the sun beaming in the sky. Lord of Death is Mara, yeah, the Mara, the army of Mara, uh, Ma, the uh, army is Sena, Sena, so the, it's like the Senapati, it's like the general, so the, uh, this is Mara Sena, I think is the Pali here, I haven't looked it up, but I'm pretty sure it is, uh, it defeats the army of Mara, like the sun beaming in the sky, the Buddha is like the sun beaming in the sky, illuminating life, illuminating the dark corners of our mind, illuminating, giving us this possibility of seeing things that we haven't seen before. Anyway, so that's what happens according to this story, after the awakening of the Buddha, did it? Did this happen exactly like this? Uh, it's hard to know, isn't it? This is not only the person there is the Buddha. No one else is around. So, uh, assuming that he has told somebody, maybe it is true. It's very hard to know. Usually, when the Buddha speaks, you have a sutta about it. Uh, but this is not the sutta. This is a narrative. This is a story. Uh, so, where have they got the stories from? Uh, and if the Buddha had told them it probably would have been a sutta, right? Because then you had the word of the Buddha. So, uh, did it happen exactly like this? Doesn't really matter, because we know the Buddha taught dependent origination. We know he had insight into that. So the truth is basically true, even though the details may be a bit uncertain. Huh? So that's the first one. So now let's go on to the other one. Huh? Then carry on. The story at the goat herd's banyan tree. After seven days, the Buddha came out from that stillness and went from the Bodhi tree to the goat herd's banyan tree. There too he sat cross-legged for seven days without moving, experiencing the bliss of freedom. Yeah, he came out from that stillness. The stillness is the translation here from uh, samadhi. There's many different translations of that word, but stillness is... Uh, Ajahn Brahm's favorite translation of Samadhi, and I, in this case, I, follow, I not always follow Ajahn Brahm's translations, but in, I think in this case it's a very good idea. So he comes out of the first seven days of experiencing bliss. That's kind of a, a kind of Samadhi that he's experiencing. And now he goes to another tree. I don't know why he goes from tree to tree, but that's what he does. Uh, <laughs> so he moves around. Uh, but uh, So... Uh, uh, <laughs> And, and then a conceited Brahmin went up to the Buddha, exchanged pleasantries with him, and said, Good Gautama, how is one a Brahmin? What are the qualities that make one a Brahmin? So, uh, 
conceited Brahmin, I think it's called Huhumkara, he goes around saying hum hum or something like that. <laughs> That's what it says there. And um, so he, I, I guess maybe it's meant as a kind of challenge to the Buddha maybe, I'm not sure. But I'm not sure exactly why he asked this. Usually Brahmins don't go around asking others what the qualities of a Brahmin are, but he does in this case. Maybe he wants to challenge the Buddha to see if he has any real insight, so he will say that Brahmins are the best or something. Yeah. But of course, that's not what the Buddha will say. The Buddha will interpret this in his own way. Yeah. So seeing the significance of this, the Buddha exclaimed an inspired utterance. Uh, the Brahmin who has shut out bad qualities, uh, who is humble, free from flaws and self-controlled, uh, who has reached final knowledge and has fulfilled the spiritual life uh, righteously uh, without being full of himself, uh, he may proclaim himself a Brahmin. Uh. So he probably said that to deflate that Brahmin a little bit. Uh. You can imagine he probably got a bit deflated. He probably expected to hear, yeah, if your mum is a Brahmin, your dad is a Brahmin, then you are a Brahmin. Uh. Or if your ancestors have been Brahmins seven generations back, then you are a Brahmin. But this is a bit more demanding, yeah? So you have to so kind of <laughs> is asking a bit more. So this again is a spiritual Brahmin, yeah? This is the real Brahmin according to Buddhism. It depends on your qualities. And here the Buddha says, you have to be an Arahant. You have to be fully enlightened to be a Brahmin. So anyone, so if you, anyone here who is fully enlightened, you can call yourself a Brahmin. So it's rare to find that in the world. Yeah, these are, takes a lot so you have shut out bad qualities, yeah? In other words, you have given them up. Uh, you don't have any greed or ill will, etc. anymore. Uh, and you are humble uh, and free from flaws, obviously, and self-controlled. Self-control comes naturally to the Arahant, not really have to do it. Uh, one of those interesting things that when you are a real Brahmin, you are humble. Uh, yeah, it's kind of fascinating when you are, finally you have become, you have risen up to become the highest that is possible to be here by getting rid of all the defilements. And you might think, well, why don't you become conceited? Yeah, you are, you are become the best. You have no defilements anymore. You have no desire, no ill will. You have good reasons to be conceited, right? Because you are so perfect. But the weird thing about perfection is that it actually makes you humble. You might think you become conceited, but actually you become humble instead. And you go around, and the Buddha says in place, he says that I'm the best of humanity. So how can you go around saying that you are the best of humanity and be humble at the same time? How do you, how do you explain that? And the idea is that it, you don't take these things personally anymore. Yeah, it is not the sense of self is gone. You know that these five khandhas have been purified to the highest extent. So in a kind of ordinary setting, you are the best in, from a spiritual point of view. But you also have no sense of self. There's no feeling that you are superior or whatever. You just realize that we are all just kind of this... A conditioned phenomena, yeah, and we change all the time. There's no real measurement. We can't measure people against each other because we're always changing. Maybe today you are more nice than your person sitting next to you. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> not sure which one of us is nicer today, but you know, one of us is probably nicer today. But tomorrow it's the other way around. The other one is nicer, right? Because we're always changing, yeah. There is no kind of essence, the real you, who is always the same. And because of that, we cannot measure each other in that way. And 
so there is no measurement going on. And every one of us has the capacity to become an arahant as well. Uh, so measurement is kind of crazy. Uh, and yet, when you do become an arahant, still, you are more purified than anyone else. Uh, the Buddha says, if you're going to compare people in superior and inferior, the only superior people in the world are the noble ones. They are superior. Uh, because they are the ones who are kind of coming to a level they cannot decline anymore. Uh. So it's kind of fascinating. You are the best in the world, but you're also humble at the same time. It kind of sounds contradictory when you think of it from an ordinary point of view. Uh. He has reached final knowledge. Yeah, Anya is the Pali word for final knowledge. There's no further knowledge. You have completed, fulfilled the brahmacharya, the spiritual life. Uh righteously, without being full of himself, uh, he may proclaim himself a Brahmin. Uh, okay, so that's what happened at the goat herd's banyan tree. The Ajapala Nigroda is the Pali word. Ajja is a goat. Pala is like a guardian of the goats and the Nigroda is a banyan tree here. These are all fig trees in India. Magnificent, large, beautiful trees. So now we come to the third story, also happening in the same place. After seven days, the Buddha came out from that stillness and went from the goat's banyan tree to a powder puff tree here. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's just that I looked up these words and the dictionary said powder puff tree. So I put powder puff tree in there. That's, that's how you do translation sometimes. You have no idea what's going on, but you just uh, put it in there. <laughs> Would you have to research it for me? Would you research it for me? And then you can tell me if it really is a K-pop. Mm. There too, he sat cross-legged for seven days without moving, experiencing the bliss of freedom. Just then, an unseasonable, unseasonal storm was approaching, bringing seven days of rain, cold winds and clouds. Muchalinda, the dragon king, came out from his abode. He encircled the body of the Buddha with seven coils and spread his large hood over his head, thinking, May the Buddha not be hot or cold, nor be bothered by horseflies or mosquitoes, by the wind or the burning sun, or by creeping animals and insects. It's interesting, he says the Buddha shouldn't be bothered by creeping animals, and then yet he's a snake himself. So it's a <laughs> this is a naga. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating. But uh, I guess uh, it doesn't really count, I suppose. Uh, so, uh, here, the dragon king, this is my translation for Naga, Nagaraja, yeah, the king of the dragons. Uh, and this is Muchalinda, and you will note, remember that very famous Buddha statue that you see in many places, where you have the, the Buddha sitting, and then you have the, the seven heads of Naga yeah, over the Buddha. You have seen, seen that one probably? Have you seen that one? It's a very common kind of way of portraying the Buddha in statues. Yeah, you see that. And this is from this particular episode right here. And this is what you find. You see the Buddha statues often have different episodes of the life of the Buddha. You have the Buddha before he's the Buddha, actually, when he's really emaciated. That's quite a common Buddha image. But remember, that image, when the 
Buddha to be is amazing. He's not actually it's not actually a Buddha image. It's a Buddha to be image. Yeah, it's the it's an image of wrong view in many ways, uh, that particular Buddha statue. So that's an interesting one here. But anyway, so Muchalinda the Dragon King comes out from his abode, yeah, and encircles, looks after the Buddha, spreads his hood over his head. And this is one of those things that you find in the suttas. You find that if you are a very pure person, sometimes you get guarded by kind of divine beings. Yeah, the dragon king, the Naga, is someone who belongs to a different kind of realm, belongs to the realm of the four great kings. It's like one is a heavenly realm. And so, uh, and this is what you find in the suttas. And sometimes you hear stories as well of human beings who've had strange experiences, as if they are guarded by some kind of supernormal power or something. Yeah. And that could be something like this. The devas are looking after you. Isn't that kind of cool? The devas are looking after you. It's kind of nice, isn't it? How can you make the devas look after you? And sometimes we think, oh, we can offer them. We have a little shrine in our garden. We offer food to the shrine. We say, oh, please, Saka, look after me. I have so much suffering here. But that's not really the way to do it. Yeah, because the gods don't really eat your food that you put out. The gods are not interested. They've got their own heavenly food. They've got ambrosia. They're not interested in our rice and, and curries. You know, for them, that's nothing. It's not very interesting. So forget about that. <laughs> forget about that. We, if you put out food, you do it for the departed. Yeah? They're the ones who can enjoy the food that we put out. Not the devas. They're not interested. So how can we make the devas look after us? Be kind. Yeah, be good. If you are a good person, the devas are interested in kind people. The devas are interested in those who are virtuous. The kinder you are, the more metta you have, the more compassion you have for the world, the more chances you'll be looked after by the devas. That is the way to do it. According to the suttas, there are these stories of the devas. They are kind of looking at the human realm and they're kind of looking around and seeing if anyone is keeping the posataha. Yeah? <laughs> Not sure if that's exactly how it works, but that's what it says. And, and then when they see people practicing well, then that's when they kind of uh, look after you. But never rely on that. Never rely on the devas looking after you because the devas are fickle. The devas don't. The devas have their own business, right? And suddenly they become occupied with playing around and amusing themselves, and they forget about you. And that is just when you're about to have an accident with your car, and then the devas are no longer protecting you. Yeah. So, so don't rely on the devas. Drive carefully. That's the <laughs> that's the only way to kind of to do things. So um, these are. So I think it's possible for devas to look after us, but it's not something we should ever rely on. You should be independent and look after yourself. That is a very important thing. But I'm saying all of these things because it is possible that this actually happened. It looks a bit like a legend, and I think it's quite possibly a legend, a legend and a mythology as well. Uh, it's sometimes it's very hard to pick out you know, what is legend and what is real. Yeah, so I think this is quite likely to be legendary. And the reason I say that is because when you read the suttas, not the stories, but the real story, the real Buddha's own teachings, uh, these things don't really happen here. Yeah, they tend to happen in the stories. They tend to happen about those things that other people remember about the Buddha. And when other people remember about the Buddha, it tends to get a bit exaggerated. 
I know that in my own life because I hear stories about monks all the time. And then I hear a story, this monk, he flew through the air and this other monk reads the mind. And then I go to that monk and I ask, is it true that you flew through the air? Is it true that, no, I never flew through the air. So there's stories, yeah, there's a stories happening in the kind of, in the, in the realm of monks and nuns and whatever. So I always take these stories with a pinch of salt because I know how easy it is to exaggerate, how easy it is to see things that are not actually happening here. So uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, in, in, in Sometimes it may have happened because these are the sort of things that can be expected sometimes. So looking after the Buddha, yeah, the Naga is making good, lots of good merit so he can be reborn as a human in the next life and become a monk or none in the next life. Is that right? <laughs> it's true. Actually, this, it may, <laughs> this may be surprising to you, but this is actually true because there is a nice story. This is a, in the ordination ceremony yeah, for monks, or nuns for that matter. And in the ordination ceremony that we have for monks and nuns, they ask the candidate, are you a human being? <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Manusosi is the Pali word. Anyone who has gone to the ordination will have heard that. Manusosi, and then the person says, Ama Bhante. Ama means yes, yes sir, yeah, yes Bhante, yes Venerable, I'm a human being. And the reason why we ask that question, the story behind that, there was a Naga who wanted to become a monk. And the Naga, because they have these kind of powers of transforming themselves into different forms, uh, transforms himself into someone looking like a youth, yeah, oh, please allow me to ordain, Venerable. They ordain this Naga, and then in the middle of the night, after being ordained, uh, when they sleep, the Nagas go back to the becoming snakes again. Uh, and the monk who was staying in the same kuti as the Naga, woke up in the middle of the night and he saw this enormous snake in his cutie here. So he screamed. <laughs> you can imagine, and most people would scream, right, seeing this enormous snake in your cutie. Yeah. And then the Buddha lays down the rule that if you're an animal, you cannot ordain. Yeah? And so then the Buddha said to this, and, and then Naga started to cry. It's a very kind of, uh, it's a kind of bittersweet story. And Naga started to cry. And then the Naga, uh, the Buddha tells him, well, you know, what do you have to do? Keep the five precepts. Nagas keep five precepts, right? Isn't that kind of sweet? Nagas, and then if you keep the five precepts, then in your next life you get reborn as a human being, then you can ordain as a monk, yeah? Or a nun, or whatever it is that you want to ordain as. So, um, is that story true? <laughs> I don't know. The, the world is weird and wonderful. There's all kind of weird things happening in the world. It's very easy to dismiss things that are a bit different from how we're used to thinking. But the longer I live, the less dismissive I am, because I realize the world is a wonderful and amazing place. There's all kind of things going on. So often I just don't know. Yeah, it's kind of, you have to stay in that realm where you don't know if something is true or not. You're just uncertain. And that's actually good. It's okay to be uncertain. We don't have to know these things. Yeah? And sometimes uncertainty is the most uh, honest reply to some of these things. Uh, anyway. So he does make good karma. Yeah? And then, after seven days, when he knew that the sky was clear, Muchalinda unraveled his coils from the Buddha's body and transformed himself into a young Brahmin. He then stood in front of the Buddha, venerating him with joined palms, with Anjali. 
Seeing the significance of this, the Buddha exclaimed an inspired utterance. Seclusion is bliss for the contented, who sees the teaching that they have heard. Kindness to the world is happiness for one who is harmless to living beings. Dispassion for the world is happiness for one who overcomes sensuality. By but removing the conceit, I am. This, indeed, is the highest bliss. So, beautiful verse. Very inspiring. The, uh, the Buddha is maybe giving a teaching uh, to this young man, yeah, or this young snake, or whatever he is. is unsure exactly what he is, a young dragon. And uh, the beautiful idea, seclusion is bliss for the contented. Uh, yeah, if you are going to enjoy seclusion, if you are going to enjoy staying in a small cutie by yourself in the forest, uh, if you are going to enjoy being on a retreat center far away from the worldly things, uh, the requirement is that you are content. Because uh, if you are not content, it means you are run by craving all the time, by ill will, all of these kind of things. Uh, but if you have a deep sense of contentment within, uh, then seclusion becomes possible. Uh, yeah, so contentment is so important in life. Uh, and so it's really worthwhile developing that contentment whereby you're no longer so pulled around by the world around you, pulled by the nose as they say. Uh, but you actually instead, you are, yeah, my life is good enough. I don't need anything more. Uh, you're happy with the way things are. Uh, we're going to com come back to the idea of contentment later on because it's part of the gradual training as we carry on. So contentment is a prerequisite for seclusion. Otherwise seclusion is going to make you crazy. Quite literally, it's very easy to go crazy if you are secluded and you're not prepared for it. The one who sees the teachings that they have heard. Yeah, this is the idea that you hear the Dhamma and then you practice and you see what you have heard through direct insight. That is uh, when seclusion becomes particularly blissful and you don't want to have anything to do with people, really. You just want to dismiss them and get rid of them, get back to your cutie as quickly as possible. And, um, yeah, this is, you can see this in people who have really developed in meditation. They don't really want to talk to you. Huh? They're actually very keen on getting back. So you have a question for someone who is very developed in meditation, Ask them a question and listen to what they have to say. But they, they're not really interested in chit-chat uh, yeah, or talking very much. Uh, they'd rather just remain quiet. Uh, and you can feel that when you are with certain people, uh, that they don't want to talk. They're not interested uh, because the peace within is what really matters for them. Uh. So, um, kindness to the world is happiness uh, for the one who is harmless to living beings. Uh. Kindness to the world is happiness. It's very beautiful. It's very worthwhile remembering. Often we look for happiness in the wrong place. But the basic kind of happiness for everyone is to be kind to others. If you treat other people well, you feel good about yourself. Yeah, it is so obvious. And um, this is such an important part of the Buddhist path. Anyone who is really serious about the Buddhist practice, uh, anyone who is serious about having success in meditation, uh, will focus on this enormously, all the time, if possible, because this is the very foundation for success in meditation practice. Uh, sila, 
kindness to the world. Be as kind as you can, moment after moment, again and again, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Sometimes, unfortunately, life in, life out. I'm not sure if that's a new coinage. I think I don't think anyone has said that before. But <laughs> so you have to carry on, right? And you have to do this all the time. This is the very basis of the path. How you think, how you perceive, how you speak, how you act, your entire habit, you know, all the, these habits kind of grouped together yeah, become so important. Kindness to the world is happiness. Yeah, it's, a very, it's a very beautiful thing. Happiness is not in having a big house or a big car or a nice relationship or being famous or being whatever, high status. This is the real happiness. For one who is harmless to living beings, dispassion for the world is happiness. For one who has overcome sensuality. Here you can see the increasing degrees of happiness. Yeah? Dispassion for the world means that you are no longer interested in the world. The world here refers usually to Kama loka, the world of sense, the sense world, that's usually what it means. So here you have no interest in that world of sensuality, dispassion, viraga, the opposite of desire for that world. Yeah? If you have overcome sensuality, karma, overcome interest in sensual pleasures, then dispassion for that whole world is happiness. We don't understand how sticky this world is. We don't understand how much suffering the ordinary world actually gives us. This is one of the most difficult things to overcome on the entire spiritual path. The stickiness of the sensual realm is very, very sticky because it appears to be so beautiful. It appears that enjoying ourselves in this world, having good relationships, having and all these sensual pleasures in that world, it seems so nice. What could possibly be wrong with that, right? And in a sense, there's nothing to feel guilty about anything like that. But it is always suffused with suffering all the way through. The very craving that we have to fulfill these things, the state of craving is actually a state of suffering. And that whole world is problematic. And when you watch what's happening in the world, that is part of that sensory realm. Yeah, look at what's going on in the world. People are despairing because of the wars going on or whatever else it is happening in that world. And then that's your private realm is difficult enough with people getting sick and dying and having arguments and all these problems and fighting over things in this world. And then you look at the world in the large scale, exactly the same thing happened on the large scale. That is, all of that is part of that sensory realm. It is through and through problematic. And sometimes you have to go beyond that. You have to have a deep state of meditation where you go beyond all of those things to really understand what this is about. Yeah, so this is the person who goes beyond that and they understand, wow, I'm rid of that sensory realm. And usually we are so biased, we are so biased in the sensual realm, we don't understand how bad it is until the problems suddenly come and suddenly we have to face the difficulties of that realm. Yeah, suddenly people die when we least expect it. Suddenly things go on that we don't actually want to happen. And we sometimes we have to feel it viscerally, yeah, directly to be able to really see the problems of that realm. And this is what's going on here. Finally let go of that. Wow, the release. 
the release from the body, the release from these five senses, the release from the up and downs of that world, running around like a dog as it has in one of the similes, uh, always seeking more pleasures, never finding satisfaction, uh, running after the impossible, uh, running lifetime after lifetime, never finding that thing because it doesn't exist in that realm. That's why you can't find it. Uh, dispassion for the world is happiness uh, for one who overcomes sensuality. Uh, but removing the conceit, I am, this indeed is the highest bliss. The conceit, I am, right? It doesn't sound like a conceit. I am sounds like reality. This sounds like a statement of fact, right? It doesn't sound like a conceit. In Buddhism, the very idea, I am, is called a conceit. Asmi mana is the Pali word. And so, this is the highest bliss, right? Overcoming the conceit I am. Why is that a bliss? And it's because, and we discussed this yesterday a little bit, why I am is problematic. And the reason that it's problematic is because I am disturbs everything. The more there is of the I am, the more there is thinking, the more there is doing, the more there is involvement in the world. By reducing the sense of I am, what is happening is that things calm down. And notice what I was saying yesterday about your meditation practice. When the meditation becomes really peaceful and really quiet, there's much less I in there. The I is almost gone. Yeah, You identify with the peace, but it's much less identification than you normally have when you think and you move and you do things in the world. And this is, instead of being scared of the idea of removing the sense of I am, many people sound scary. How can I remove the sense I am? I want to exist. I want to be here. Yeah, don't take my eye away. <laughs> yeah, but so the way to overcome that scariness of the I am is to actually see what happens in your meditation when things start to calm down. There's less I, and lo and behold, it is beautiful when that happens. It is very satisfying, very delightful when that happens. And you will all have some idea about that. Yeah, about time as a meditation when you have been peaceful, and you know that actually it is so satisfying. The energy comes back. You feel sometimes you feel bliss and happiness. Yeah, the less there is of me, the more bliss and happiness you feel. It's like a reverse what is called an inverse relationship between the I am and the amount of happiness that you feel. You want to get rid of that. The I am is a real torture because the I am is the one that makes you act in the world. Very often you see people who identify with the doer. Yeah, They are doers in their life. You know what I mean? People who want to do, and when you do, you feel alive, yeah? You are the agent in your life. You create, you do, and you run around doing things. And that is where the I am becomes a torturer because you identify with the doer and you say this is me. That's when you satisfy that feeling of me by doing things because you identify with the doer. And this is a big problem. So you, as you become peaceful in your meditation, you start identifying less with that doer because you see that there's something preferable to that. So I am is really the root of the problem. 
I am is the thing that makes us crave. I am is the thing that makes us have ill will. These are all cravings that comes from the agency of the of the of the the doer and the identification with the doer inside. I am when when you exist, then you have to have qualities. Yeah, you have to be somebody. You can't just have I am without being something. You have to be something, and that thing that you are. This is the five khandas. This is why we have the idea of five khandas, five aggregates, yeah, the aspects of personality. Yeah. So you identify with certain feelings, certain perceptions, uh, consciousness, with doing, with certain forms. Uh, and because those feelings and perceptions, they also relate to how the world outside. Uh, yeah, you feel good inside if the world praises you, for example, right? So because that, you start looking for praise in the world. And then we start attaching to things in the world because of our I am inside. And so it leaks into the world, the sense of I am, and we attach to things outside. And this is how I am leads to this problem of attachment to the sensory world. And then the whole thing carries on like this. So I am is at the root. If you eliminate I am, this is the deep elimination of ignorance at the beginning of dependent origination. When you see through that, the whole thing starts to unravel. And then eventually craving comes to an end and suffering comes to an end. This is all extremely interesting. Right? I don't know about you, but I, I th this is really fascinating stuff. And it's deep psychology. And um, yeah, but this is kind of the Buddhist path. So don't be afraid of I am. Sorry, don't be afraid of removing I am. Be afraid of I am. Don't be afraid of removing I am. <laughs> Try to understand it in a way so it doesn't sound scary. Yeah. Okay. So this is the next little story. Uh, the story at the ape flower tree. So again, I just used a dictionary and the dictionary said ape flower tree, so I put that in there. After seven days, the Buddha came out from that stillness uh, and went from the powder puff tree to an ape flower tree. There too he sat cross-legged for seven days without moving, experiencing the bliss of freedom. Just then the merchants Tapusa and Balika were traveling from Ukkala to that area. Then a god who was a former relative of theirs said to them, Sirs, a Buddha who has just attained awakening is staying at the foot of an ape flower tree. Go to that Buddha and offer him baked goods and honey. That will be for your benefit and happiness for a long time. It's kind of cool to have relatives in the heavenly realm who tell you what to do, point out the Buddhas to you. Yes, I hope. I mean, it's good be, yeah, so maybe if you get reborn in a nice devaloka, you can kind of help your relatives later on and can point out, go there, go there, this way, yeah, this, this one is enlightened, this one is clueless, and you go, go here. <laughs> you can kind of point out the real ones. Sometimes it does, doesn't help you to be, I'm not sure why the god would know who the Buddha is, because gods don't necessarily have that insight, so it's a bit, little bit strange, but maybe this was a god who had some grounds for knowing that. So they took baked goods and honey and went to the Buddha. They bowed down and said, Venerable Sir, please accept the baked goods and honey from us. 
that will be for our benefit and happiness for a long time. <laughs> so uh, it's, can, it's, it's actually quite nice. That will be for our happiness and benefit for a long time. Isn't that kind of nice? You very often when people think about giving a gift to somebody, we think, "Oh, this I'm doing this for you, yeah, so that you can be happy. So I'm giving you a gift." And then you sometimes people feel conceited because they are helping others. But actually, you should never think like that. You don't help others. Of course, we help others to benefit them, but we help others to benefit ourselves. Yeah, we are both, both the receiver and ourselves benefit from kindness. And when you give it to the Buddha, the Buddha probably doesn't really worry too much about whether people offer him or not. He will be looked after one way or the other. So especially with the Buddha, you are offering for your own benefit, yeah, looking after the Buddha. That's a nice way of saying it. It takes away some of that conceit that I am supporting others. yeah. And sometimes we are proud of the way we support others and these kind of things. And uh, no, you should give for your own benefit. Uh, and then it becomes really beautiful. So when you say that to the Buddha, how, what can the Buddha, Buddha can't say no? Yeah, he has to say, well, if you're doing this for, you know, for your own benefit, I will receive because the Buddha has compassion for others. Uh, he wants to help them. Uh, so it's a kind of nice, nice little um, little thing there. You help others for the benefit of yourself. Uh, this is one of the ways that I like to define an action that is truly spiritual or truly Buddhist, uh, is if it is helpful for others and yourself, uh, then it is a spiritual action. Uh, yeah, so you ask yourself, what I'm doing now, is it benefiting both myself and others? If it is, well, then it is good. Then it is suitable to do. If it is a greedy act, that means it benefits just you. If it is an act of ill will or whatever, and it benefits nobody, actually, that's really, that's even worse. That's kind of crazy. But you think it benefits you, yeah, if you are having, if you're acting from ill will. The Buddha thought, Buddhas don't receive with their hands. In what should I receive the baked goods and honey? Then, reading the mind of the Buddha, the four great kings, the Chattu Maharajika Deva, offered him four stone balls from the four directions, saying, Here, sir, please receive the baked goods and honey in these. After receiving the baked goods and honey in one of those valuable stone balls, the Buddha ate them. Sounds a bit like the Buddha ate the stone balls, doesn't it? It's, 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 when I, it's interesting when you read your own translation, you become very fault-finding, much more than when you read other translations, I think. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, so the Buddhas don't receive with their hands. Why, why is that? Well, I think it is just a matter maybe of dignity here. Yeah, it's kind of a bit, maybe a bit undignified to receive with your hands. And this, I think, is quite likely, as I said before, this is like a narrative, it's a story, right? And because it is a story, this is quite likely something that the editors, the people who wrote the story, they felt uncomfortable about the Buddha receiving in the hands. I think the Buddha, as a person, probably would receive in his hand if it was necessary. Yeah, usually we have a bowl, but uh, this was too early. There was no no bowl yet because it was maybe he, actually maybe he did have a bowl already because he was an ascetic before that. He hasn't eaten. Yeah, this is the first time he eats. Yeah, but he would have had a bowl anyway, wouldn't he? Because before he must have had a bowl from before. 
because he was an ascetic for five years. He must have, I, anyway, uh, right, there's something dodgy about the story here. I'm not <laughs> anyway, he gets stone, and, then, and also stone balls. It's kind of, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? A stone ball, it's, it doesn't sound like a very practical gift, but anyway, so these, these gods need to kind of think a bit more carefully next time they give a ball, I think, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, they, uh, he, so I think it's just, this has to do with the dignity of the Buddha. He has to have a ball to receive in. And of course, he gets it from the gods, right? This kind of is all fits in with the story. He receives these things uh, and then he eats them. Huh? When Tapusa and Balika knew that the Buddha had finished his meal, they bowed down with their head at his feet and said, Sir, we take refuge in the Buddha and the teaching. Please accept us as lay followers who have gone f for refuge for life. By means of the double refuge, they became the first lay followers in the world. So this is the the first lay followers, yeah. And uh, so this is uh, anyone who has been kind of educated in properly in Buddhism will know that Tapusa and Balika were the first lay followers. And you will notice there that they go to the double refuge, right? Because there is no Sangha yet. Actually, I'm not even sure if there is a Dhamma. I guess there is a Dhamma. Maybe that's why dependent origination comes beforehand, because he's thinking about the Dhamma. So the Dhamma is kind of existing. So, but the double refuge, yeah, the teaching and the Buddha, is what they go to refuge to, uh, because that is what exists at this time. Uh. It's a nice little story here. Uh. Yeah, the two first lay people. So you kind of see the development here of the Buddha, the four parisas, the four assemblies. Yeah, the Buddha is in existence, so there is already at least one monk, if you like. And then you have the laymen, two laymen coming. So that with kind of the four assemblies slowly being kind of coming into existence. Uh. And you can imagine what it is like, yeah? You offer the food to the Buddha, and probably it is very inspiring to do that, uh, yeah? Probably supremely inspiring. Imagine meeting the Buddha after, the first people to meet the Buddha after his awakening, yeah? Imagine what that is like, yeah? The Buddha is bound to be radiant, yeah? Supremely peaceful, yeah? It's like, it's gonna be, it's almost unimaginable uh, how powerful that experience is going to be. Uh, and uh, these are the people, if they are ready, if they are the kind of people who have a little bit of spiritual insight, uh, they will see that there's something really powerful going on here. Like we were talking about yesterday, just seeing that Buddha in that way. Uh, and then, then at the end of it, uh, they then bow down. Please, we want to take refuge, uh, because this obviously is very powerful and very meaningful, what is happening here. Uh. So, um, no wonder they take refuge, meeting the Buddha after this. We shall see that this is in contrast to another person who does not take refuge, who had the chance but blew it. And we'll see that later on. And that is kind of a bit sad almost when that happens. So, we have four minutes left. Um... Yeah, I don't think it is really kind of worthwhile starting on the next section because uh, four minutes we're going to read two sentences and we have to stop. So probably not uh, uh, do that. We'll probably stop there. Uh, is there anything there we should uh, comment on in the, that section which I didn't comment on? Uh,
No, I think that's maybe that's maybe enough. So uh, please uh, continue enjoying yourself. Have a nice cup of tea later on, and then we'll see you back again at 6:30 this evening. Let's just finish up by paying homage to the Triple Gem.